These demon-possessed men, they were clearly isolated in their situation, outcasts from normal society. But when Jesus lands on the shore, they make an absolute beeline for him. The demons living within these men, they've spotted Jesus a mile off. They know who has just landed in their region. They know better than anyone else. Here is their arch enemy. Here is someone with power far greater than their power. Welcome to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths. Today, a message from the book of Matthew chapter 8. It's called The Power of the King. And Jonathan, I find it fascinating that when these demon-possessed men encounter Jesus, what the demons had them do is actually go towards Jesus. You would think that they would want to get away from him. Why do you think it was that they went towards him? Well, it is really interesting, isn't it, Steve? These demons, they have spiritual insight that the rest of the characters within the story don't have. They've seen Jesus high and exalted in heaven above. And when they see Jesus arrive on the scene, these guys, they know that they're beaten. <laughs> and so they know that it's time to beg. There's no point running. And they've got that insight that, that others don't yet have. You know, it's so fascinating that uh, they recognize the fact that they are beaten. And so the thing to do is to go to Jesus, seeing that there is uh, an application for us already in that. Well, that's right. I think we're being reminded here that Jesus is the supreme ruler of the universe and that he has all power and, and all authority in heaven and earth and under the earth. And what a comfort that is for a believer. But it's also a chastening wake-up call for those who don't yet recognize the lordship of Jesus Christ. Well, we're going to continue to look at this today from the book of Matthew. We're in chapter 8, so grab a Bible and join us there as we begin a message called The Power of the King. Here is Jonathan. Last week we ended with a question, the question of Matthew 8, verse 27. The disciples have just seen Jesus calm a storm on the Sea of Galilee with the word of his mouth, and they've been prompted to ask this very, very important question. What kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. That's a good question. It's an important question. And that key question is really at the heart of this section of Matthew's gospel. It's still very much in the air as Jesus now lands on the other side of the lake. And we pick up the story at verse 28. It's normal, I think, at least in childhood, to have a number of irrational fears. Fears of the dark, fears of monsters, fears of robbers, fears of baddies. Gemma and I were talking the other day about some of the fears that our children have, and we both remembered ourselves being afraid of the monster under the bed, needing to do that running jump into the bed so the monster couldn't get you, couldn't nip at your heels on the way in. I expect many of us did that running jump at some stage in childhood. I won't ask for a show of hands from adults who still do the running jump into bed, but I expect... A few here in this room still have that lingering fear of that monster who lurks in the shadows. From time to time at various places, the Bible speaks clearly to us about the forces of darkness, about Satan, about demons, about evil spirits. And many skeptical people in our world today would write off such talk as nonsensical Many would say that talk of demons and devils is about as valid as talk of monsters under the bed, childish fables to be set aside and then forgotten. 
But here in our passage in Matthew chapter 8, the Lord Jesus Christ encounters some demons who are shown to be very real, very much alive, thoroughly capable of causing damage and of doing harm. But at the same time, in this encounter, we're taught not to live in fear of these demons, not to have nightmares about them, but to see and to understand that their power is limited and their capacity is curtailed. I've mentioned before C.S. Lewis's famous comment on the dangerous extremes in our perceptions of demons. In the preface to the Screwtape Letters, at least the preface of one edition of it, he says this, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and an unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are pleased by both errors and hail the materialist and the magician with the same delight. Now, there's some wisdom in that comment. And in a sense, this incident here in Matthew chapter 8 is said before us in order to help us to strike a healthy balance between those two extremes. Having crossed over the Lake of Galilee in search of some peace and quiet, Jesus lands on the shore to find neither, no peace and no quiet. No sooner has he landed than two demon-possessed men come out to meet him. The statement in verse 28, it's unadorned. There's no drama attached to it. It's quite matter of fact. We don't get discussion. We don't get much explanation. We're simply told that these men have been under the tyranny of demons. They've been hanging out in tombs, probably living there. Tombs carved into the side of the rock face would have provided shelter for people who were evidently a menace to society and no longer welcome in their community. In fact, Matthew tells us in verse 28 that under the influence of these demons, these men had become so violent that no one could even pass that way. They were a complete menace. Tombs were a grim but an appropriate place for these men to live. Under Jewish law, tombs were unclean places. They were ceremonially unclean. Dead bodies were always regarded as unclean. And for people possessed of unclean spirits, and that's how Scripture sometimes speaks of demons, unclean spirits, this markedly unclean environment was a totally appropriate place for them to live and hang out. These demon-possessed men, they were clearly isolated in their situation, outcasts from normal society. But when Jesus lands on the shore, they make an absolute beeline for him. The demons living within these men, they've spotted Jesus a mile off. They know who has just landed in their region. They know better than anyone else. Here is their arch enemy. Here is someone with power far greater than their power. And so they go over to meet Jesus, not to confront him threateningly or aggressively, but really to plead with him, crying out, verse 29, What do you want with us, Son of God? Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? These ugly and angry demons are clearly frightened before this carpenter, this teacher. They see beyond the reality of his simple clothing and his ordinary human frame. They recognize his true power and his true identity. They see a herd of pigs in the distance, unclean pigs. Beyond the pale for Israelites to see or to live near, certainly beyond the pale to eat, they see these unclean animals and they identify an appropriate, filthy home for themselves. And we're told that they begged Jesus, 
pleaded with him to send him into the pigs. The carpenter of Nazareth, he says one word, verse 32, go. And they do just that. And given as these demons are to death and to destruction, they do what comes naturally to them. They take this herd of pigs and they drive them to destruction, taking them down the steep bank and into the lake where the pigs promptly die in the water. It's a dramatic scene. We skim over it quite quickly, but we need to try and just pause and picture it for a moment in our mind's eye. We've been told that this is a large herd of pigs, not just one or two. We should probably think of dozens, if not hundreds, and imagine hundreds of squealing, fat, muddy pigs running. Pigs generally move slowly, remember, but these guys get their trotters into gear and they're motoring down this bank. If you spend any time on farms, if you've visited the pigs, even at the experimental farm here in town, you can picture them lolling around in their muddy pen. If you picture that, you can see the drama of this scene. Pigs generally don't hurry, and they're certainly not much for swimming. But having rushed down the hill, they dive straight into the lake, and suddenly a big herd, the livelihood of many farmers, suddenly they're destroyed. The word gets out. Both of the deliverance of these poor men and of the extraordinary destruction of the pigs and the reaction of the community, it is interesting, isn't it? Verse 34, Then the whole town went down to meet Jesus, And when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. It's a dramatic incident. It's an intriguing story. For many of us, if we read the Gospels, it's a familiar story and one that we can skim over quite quickly. But the story is here for a reason. Jesus performed this great feat intentionally, and Matthew recorded it with a purpose. So what are we meant to see? What are we meant to learn As we slow down and observe the scene and listen to the the account, a few things do jump out at us. A few things are abundantly clear. And the first is this. This incident shows us that the power of demons is real. You're listening to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths, a message today called The Power of the King, taking a look at Matthew 8, verses 28 to 34, and We're going to get back to this message in just a moment. By the way, if you ever miss one of the broadcasts, you can always come to our website and you can listen to what you missed, or you can just go back and listen to it again. Our website address is EncounterTheTruth.org. And we're able to bring you Jonathan's teaching because of your generosity. We're listener-supported, and that's exactly what it sounds like. We're able to stay on the air because of your generosity. And as you give a gift this month, we want to send you a book from... Charles Spurgeon is called Checkbook of the Bank of Faith, and it's a collection of writings that Spurgeon penned years ago to encourage believers to enter into the full provision that their relationship with Jesus entitled them to realize on a daily basis, really explaining that we have to present the promises of Scripture to God in prayer and in faith and anticipating that God will honor what he has said. We'd love to send you a copy of this book, Checkbook of the Bank of Faith, For your support of Encounter the Truth, you can give your gift online by coming to EncounterTheTruth.org or you can call us at 833-99-TRUTH. That's 833-998-7884 or again, our website is EncounterTheTruth.org. 
Well, if you are just joining us, again, we're in the book of Matthew, chapter 8, as we look at verses 28 to 34 and continue the message, The Power of the King. Here is Jonathan. As we slow down and observe the scene and listen to the the account, a few things do jump out at us. A few things are abundantly clear. And the first is this. This incident shows us that the power of demons is real. Although we're tempted to think of demons as mythological monsters under the bed, this incident shows us that they need to be taken a bit more seriously than that. This incident provides a window for us into a spiritual and supernatural reality that the Bible says is constantly there beneath the surface in our world and which occasionally rears its very ugly head. Now, at this point, it is worth our while just taking a step back from this incident in Matthew chapter 8 on the shores of the Sea of Galilee to widen the camera angle a little bit and consider the Bible's larger presentation of the forces of darkness. I normally don't like to jump around uh, to too many different places in the Bible during a a sermon. We can get a little lost if we're not careful. But I would like this morning to refer to a few other parts of Scripture to try and give us a little bit of biblical context. And I hope that's going to help us this time. Obviously, these demons in verse 28, they don't appear from nowhere. There's a, a longer history and a bigger story that they clearly represent. The Bible doesn't go into minute detail to tell us all that there is to know about the devil and about his demons. They actually don't deserve excessive attention from us. But the Bible does give us enough information to get our bearings and to have a basic understanding. And the essential storyline seems to be this. God not only created the earthly physical realm that we see with our eyes and feel with our hands, he also created a spiritual realm and spiritual beings, in particular angels, angels who serve him in heaven and do his bidding. And at some point early on in the history of creation, there was a heavenly rebellion against God. Evidently, this rebellion was led by Satan. This fallen angel with his fallen angels, they were banished from heaven and then gave themselves to opposing God and opposing his work. By the time we reach the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3, this rebellion has already taken place. Satan is now there in the garden. He's assumed the form of the serpent, and he is seeking to undo God's creation and spread lies, spread this rebellion to humanity through deceit. Satan and his fallen angels, they hate God and they hate his people. They spend their time and their energy figuring out how to undermine God's handiwork, seeking to destroy the relationship between God and human beings, seeking to bring death and destruction to humanity. And of course, they've had considerable success in that dark and that hateful endeavor. The evidence is all around us. But it's important for us to remember that these beings are not on an equal footing with God. These beings are created by God, even if they have now turned in rebellion against him. And scripture teaches us that while God has allowed Satan and his minions a limited degree of latitude to cause damage and disruption and chaos for a time, God is not going to allow this to go on indefinitely. Scripture tells us a day is coming when Satan will be thrown into the lake of burning sulfur. We read of that in Revelation chapter 20. In Jude 6, we read that the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their own home, these he has kept in darkness 
bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. These beings, they are chained and they are bound for judgment, yet they go about causing trouble in the world. The reformer John Calvin speaks of them as dragging their chains with them wherever they go, like a convict in years gone by, perhaps escaped from prison, but wearing that ball and chain wherever he goes, clearly headed back to prison at some point, at large, but in chains. The devil and his agents, his demons, their time is limited, their fate is dire. But for now, the Lord has given them some liberty to continue their work. They're dangerous and they're seeking to do whatever harm they can do. Now, in the Gospels, as we read through, we do notice that there seems to be an unusual degree of demonic activity, a degree that we arguably didn't see throughout the Old Testament history and that we arguably don't see even today course that's impossible for us to measure in any kind of very substantial way but during the ministry of Jesus on earth it was as though the devil and his agents were putting up a great and a desperate resistance to the one who they knew would bring their destruction and their defeat they knew that the arrival of Jesus on the scene and the work of Jesus meant that the game was up for them and there was a desperation about it But as we see the activity of demons here by the Lake of Galilee in Matthew chapter 8, we are reminded that demons are very real and very capable of causing harm. We can only imagine as we think of these men, we can only imagine that these demon-possessed men had friends and family, had homes and perhaps livelihoods. But somehow along the way, and we don't know how, they became exposed to demons. Perhaps they were foolish enough to get uh, mixed up in dark spiritual practices. Perhaps they're foolish enough to get close to witchcraft. We don't know what happened. But when these demons took hold of them, the men lost control of their lives and they became helpless and hapless vessels for these sinister spirits. And once uh, possessed by them, they exchanged homes for tombs, community for isolation, and they became violent, defiled outcasts from their community. It's very sobering to see here the destructive power of these demons. Two lives captive, crippled, consumed. I don't think there's any indication in the New Testament that demon possession has stopped with the age of the apostles. I think we should assume that this is something that can still take place today. And perhaps there is actually more of it in our society than we care to recognize. Certainly those among us who have lived and worked in other societies and some other parts of the world will tell us that demon possession is is very prevalent and on the surface in, in other places. It's seen and recognized within society. As we think about this rather strange and rather unfamiliar theme, it is important for us to recognize very early on that demons cannot possess a Christian. That is, they can't take hold of a believer's life in the same all-consuming way as we see they've taken hold of these men's lives in Matthew 8. We don't see evidence of a born-again, spirit-filled person being afflicted in this kind of a way in the New Testament. And that, of course, makes sense. If we have the Spirit of God within us, he leaves no room for evil spirits to dominate us. But the devil and his spirits certainly can trouble believers and even influence believers. We're told in 1 Peter chapter 5 that our enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. 
And that warning in 1 Peter chapter 5 is addressed to Christians. You see, the devil targets believers, and he is capable of doing great harm to believers and among believers. Scripture tells us that the devil is the father of lies. He is the great deceiver. And very often, the devil's work involves sowing deception, as he did in the Garden of Eden, if you remember. He causes discord and destroys relationships. That's one of his favorite tactics. And sometimes there will be situations in families or in churches where, where deception has just come in, where division has arisen, discord. And without being able to say for sure, you sense that the devil and his agents have been hard at work. One of my former ministry colleagues, when situations arose where he could see danger signs and just see how the devil might be using it, he used to just say, you know, I think I can smell the sulfur here. It just smells of the agents of hell. And sometimes in some situations, you do just get a sniff of the sulfur and you wonder, perhaps there is some influence here that, that is dark. Of course, we don't want to become obsessive. We don't want to go to that one end of the spectrum that, that Lewis was talking about where you see a demon behind every rose bush. We want to be sensible, but you just wonder. Perhaps there's a situation of strange discord and unaccountable tension between people. Perhaps there's doctrinal confusion. and It just seems to have come out of nowhere. Where did that idea come from? And something about the situation, it just seems off. There's something you can't put your finger on. You see the deception. You see the ugliness. You see the discord. And it just smacks of the devil's work. It just smells bad. I wonder if you've ever had that experience. I certainly have. In fact, it has been my experience that in seasons of ministry, ministry I've been involved with, ministry I've observed elsewhere, almost the more fruitful the ministry, almost when the gospel is advancing the most and the Lord Jesus is being the most glorified, those are the seasons when there seems to be all the more strange opposition, all the more difficulty, and you just wonder what's going on. I can think of one occasion where there was a series of events that just provided roadblocks or difficulty in ministry during a fruitful time. And I, I told a, a ministry associate about one particular incident that had just been strange and, and a bit unsettling for us. And he said to me, I hope you feel very encouraged by what's happened there. I hope you're encouraged that that's taken place. And I'll tell you, there was nothing encouraging about this incident itself. But my friend's point was a good one. What he was saying was this, opposition comes when there is something worth opposing. The devil and his ugly team of goons, they, they take an interest when the gospel is going forward. That's what was going on in Jesus' day. See, the kingdom was advancing and they didn't like it. And sometimes trouble and opposition, they're actually a sign that there's something that's worth the devil's time. Something worth his energy. Something worth undermining because it's dangerous for him. So we're, we're right to be aware of this spiritual dynamic. In fact, we need to be aware of this dynamic so we won't be deceived and so that we won't be caught off guard. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 10, Paul speaks of his readiness to forgive the believers at Corinth. You'll remember there's a lot to forgive there of any wrong that they've done. And he says he wants to do that so that they won't play into the devil's scheme, his plot, to alienate believers one from another. See, Paul, he's aware of what Satan's trying to do. And so he says this, And what I've forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware 
of his schemes. And we mustn't be unaware. We mustn't be ignorant. We mustn't be naive. Really a powerful look today that the power of demons is real, but the power of Jesus is even greater. You're listening to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths, a message called The Power of the King, and we're going to continue this message next time. If you're ever away from your radio and you miss Jonathan's teaching, I want you to know that you can always listen to each and every broadcast online. We want to make it easy for you to connect, so you can always come to the website and there you can stream the program or download it. Our website address is EncounterTheTruth.org. That's EncounterTheTruth.org. Well, for Jonathan, I'm Steve Hiller. Glad that you've tuned in today and do hope that you'll join us next time as we continue this message, The Power of the King, here on Encounter the Truth.